This is not Sean Connery, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't listen to the 430 Movie Podcast at 430movie.com. At the end of the universe lies the beginning of Inglorious Trexperts. Podcast now. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, host of The 430 Movie, and I am so excited to introduce you to our new podcast, Best Movies Never Made. We got, oh my God, this is what is this podcast about, you're wondering? Well, it's about best movies never made. Movies that were written or developed and never made it to see the light of a projector bulb, or in this case, even Netflix. Uh, so we are so, uh, we got a great group of people who will be your hosts through this, uh, taking you on this journey every week. Uh, to my left is a, a, a longtime friend and, and colleague. I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. He's an expert in the uh, world of uh, movies, un- unproduced movies, both uh, his own and others. And uh, <laughs> it's Steve Scarlatta. Steve, um, you produced Jodorowsky's Dune, one of the great documentaries about an unproduced project, a fantastic film that Sony Pictures Classics released a couple of years ago. And uh, you're also in production right now on your new documentary tied in about novelizations uh, of movies which I was lucky enough to be a part of and uh, welcome oh thank you so much for having us do this show it's um, it's a dream we love it thank you well uh, look like I said it, it's always been a subject of great fascination to me back when I used to read Cinefantastic as a kid they used to do all these articles on movies that uh, either uh, we're in production and never happened, or, or you know, I'm the famous cover story on the Primevals, you know, where they, they, they talked about this great movie, the Primevals, and you know, here we are, still waiting for it to come out uh, 40 years later or whatever it is. Uh, and uh, Steve's uh, co-host is uh, Josh Miller. Josh, um, you may know, he was the creator of Golan the Insatiable, which was on Fox, and now you can find on Hulu. He wrote the upcoming uh, Sony film Sonic, Sonic the Hedgehog. Well, now it's Paramount. Oh, it's, now it's in Paramount. Yeah. I stand corrected. <laughs> Things happen, uh, <laughs> but. There, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, you, you you may recall one of your favorite video game characters, who's now going to uh, be on the big screen, shockingly. And uh, he also is the curator and uh, producer here in L.A. of the uh, Friday Night Frights, which is a uh, series of horror screenings uh, locally of great and not so great horror movies. So welcome, Josh. Thank you very much. Uh, and I guess I would say my interest in this topic, I was thinking about this this morning, of probably the earliest I could remember is... Um, one of my mom's friends for my birthday got me stock in Marvel Comics before they went bankrupt. Which <laughs> um, is like one stock, but I would get their like you know quarterly whatever, which they did up like a little comic book. And I remember they announced that James Cameron was doing a Spider-Man movie, and I got so excited as a kid. And then just you know this was pre-internet, and I didn't read a lot of movie magazines, so just in my mind it was going to come out soon. And then years went by, and I was just like, what happened to it, man? So funny. I used to, I, I told the story on our other podcast, but it's true. <laughs> I used to, on the way home from high school, stop at the newsstand on Mondays and get daily variety, weekly variety in New York it was, and they didn't have the daily. And um, every year for Cannes, 
was like this 200 or 300 page issue and it was mostly canon film ads <laughs> but it was it was and it was all these one sheets for movies of which Spider-Man of course canon films had the Spider-Man movie um but I would say 70% of those movies never got made yeah. <laughs> and that was always a source of endless fascination mm-hmm. to me because of course the one sheets were so much more interesting than the movies I still remember the Life Force one from uh when it came out in 83 now the movie came out I think 84 but in the 83 issue it was and it was still space vampires and it had these uh, lovely nude women strapped to like these spaceships and it was crazy it was crazy <laughs> and that ended up becoming life force but these the you know it was the, the heyday of painted artwork pre-photoshop and it was always these fantastic movies and you always say when is this going to come out and most mm-hmm. of them didn't but because you know you guys are going to introduce us to you know a world of these movies that never saw the light of projector bulb and along with your special guests and this week we're lucky to have um he's the writer uh director of um Sequence break. Yeah, sequence break. Sequence break. I, I, and, and and of course, uh, you know, um, also uh, was a star of Beyond the Gates and uh, reanimator the musical. And uh, Graham Shipper is here. Graham, welcome Graham. to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me on. I'm uh, excited to be here. And uh, yeah, my my crowning achievement in movies that never got made was when I was in high school. I wrote a Star Wars Star Trek crossover script. That was awesome. <laughs> that unbelievably never got made. But, well, uh... you know, don't give up hope because when Disney buys Paramount, there's still a chance. There you go. That... See? Because it's go. inevitable, right? Picard can finally become the Jedi I always wanted him to be. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I mean, those are movies we'll never see. The movies that we saw in our heads. I mean, like, uh, you know, you know, back. I remember back in 78 or 79, we're thinking, oh, what if the Battlestar Galactica met Buck Rogers? You know, yes. now it's like Star Wars meets Star Trek, and and of course IDW has done some of those comics, like those weird mashups, like Planet of the Apes meets Star Trek, and it all started, I guess, with Alien versus Predator, right? I mean, that mm-hmm. was like the beginning of this I sort of mashup. I was a big fan up. of Batman versus Predator. Yeah, I remember that. Batman so has this one. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no question. You know, he would have anyway, to build a super suit to win, though. So each mo- each week, you guys are going to focus on uh, a new movie or or movie franchise that 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 never never got made. Um, and uh, you have some great guests and, and, and movies coming up. I know uh, Bill Malone's going to be here in a couple of weeks talking about Dead uh, Star. Dead yeah. Star, yeah, which yeah. is, is, is going to be great. And, uh, but today, you're kicking off the show with uh, two of the most famous or infamous unproduced projects of all time, which are Night Skies and E.T., Two. <laughs> now, the sequel, the motion picture. And I have to tell you a funny story before we start. I remember... You know, I'm not sure, if, you know, I was in Black Tower pitching a TV show or whatever, and it was for a, a pilot that we had sold to USA. And outside the window was, uh, uh, in front of univer- the Universal lot, was this guy with a cardboard sign that said, E.T. to the return, bring him home, and it had his telephone number. Oh, and I think it said, Dear Mr. Spielberg. And he would literally stand outside the window of Universal Studios with this giant sign with E.T. to the return on trying to get somebody if he thought this was a way that you you know you don't need an agent or a lawyer you just need a cardboard sign and he was standing outside the studio with this sign and I remember we were saying to our executive wow it's so weird when we drove in there's like you can see him from this window up here this guy with the sign about E.T. too and he says yeah he's been there for like the last month and we're like oh my god <laughs> that's insane so well, when Josh, I, isn't that how you got the Sonic the Hedgehog gig? Yeah, totally. <laughs> That's what I thought. Persistence. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, uh, so tell us, I mean, for our audience who probably doesn't know much, uh, or, or maybe they do, about the, these projects, what's the, the genesis of all this, and what, what were these, these projects? 
Yeah, Steve, you want to want to take us back to the late 70s and what was going on in the life of Mr. Steven Spielberg? Yeah, but actually, I think I may need to turn to you, Mark, because um, this all spawned off of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering, like, you, I believe, did you see it theatrically when it came out? Wait, were you accusing me of being older than you? <laughs> yes, as a matter of fact, I, I did see Close Encounters and in the theater uh, in 1977. And, you know, the funny thing about Close Encounters is um, it was long before assigned seating. So I got to the theater, I have to say, pretty early. It's funny I remember this. I was pretty young, but I got to the theater pretty early. I ended up in the first row. You know, it was, that was there were like two seats left. And I don't not like, wa- I, even then, I do not like watching movies in the first row. But it was Close Encounters <laughs> and I had to see it. Because the, I remember that, the, 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 you know, it was a very eerie campaign, you know, leading up to Close All you saw was that lonely road and the stars. And they would start to slowly roll out the idea of f- Close Encounter the first kind, what that was, and Close Encounter the second time, you know, Close Encounter the third kind, alien contact, you know. And it was like really creepy and weird and, you know, everybody was really excited. It was coming on the heels of Star Wars, which we'd all fallen in love with in May. And now here Steven Spielberg was doing this epic science fiction movie about contacting extraterrestrials. And it was really special. And what was also great about it was when you look back to the 50s, most of these movies, even in which the aliens weren't really here to hurt us, were the, perceived as the adversary. Because even Day of the Earth is still, if we didn't listen to Klaatu and Gort, the day was that the earth was yeah. going to stand still, right? So, and and we'd all be floating away. But uh, the you know War of the Worlds, you know them. All these movies were the aliens were the adversary. Well, it was not them; they weren't aliens. But most of these movies were alien invasion movies where the aliens were not our friends. Close Encounters was a movie where the aliens, you know, who we think are here for some, have some hostile intent or 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 God knows what, are actually here to be our, you know, to make contact. Spoiler alert. And, um, you know, it's, it's such a remarkable um, uh, change uh, of the paradigm. And it was just such a, uh, an amazing movie because, of course, you had those extraordinary Douglas Trumbull special effects. Um, you, you, you had a brilliant performance anchored by um, the wonderful Richard Dreyfuss. Melinda Dillon's great in it, the little Carrie Guffey. And then Francois Truffaut is marvelous. So it's just a really terrific movie. And it worked for both kids and adults. And people forget now because, obviously, Star Wars has in so many ways overshadowed Close Encounters um, in terms of the zeitgeist. Um, but... Close Encounters was the number, like the number two movie that year. It was huge, and uh, people were obsessed by it. In fact, to the point where um, George Lucas was so convinced that Close Encounters was going to blow Star Wars away in the theater that they traded points. So Spielberg got the back end on Star Wars, and uh, Lucas took the back what? end on Close Encounters. Wow. Yeah. And, 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 and it, it, it goes to show you that uh, George Lucas's uh, judgment was impaired even back then. Yes. Wow. Wow. <laughs> And no, no, and I look. I love Oops. George Lucas. I kid, I kid. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So I guess what happened? What, so it was a huge hit, pretty much. You said second place that year, and yeah, so a, huge, enor- enormous. I mean, it was a, a tremendous success for Columbia Pictures, which is why they did the special edition the next year or the, the next couple of years, because Spielberg, under no circumstances, was going to do a, do a sequel. Mm-hmm. He had no He did not do Jaws two. Mm-hmm. He was not doing a sequel to Close Encounters. He was definitely not doing a sequel to 1941. Um, <laughs> so uh, when he did the special, he was the concession he did was to shoot new footage for what became 
game, Close Encounters, the special edition, which was a new cut, uh, slightly altered. But then the big additional footage he shot was the interior of the mothership, which sort of looks kind of like the Bonaventure Hotel down downtown. <laughs> it, you know, it's not a very exciting... I mean, it looks like a lobby at the W nowadays. Uh, not, not, not great, and I think he came to regret it. But it made another, you know, ton of money um, back then because, of course, home video hadn't really... Um, uh, become a thing so people went back to see Close Encounters with this new ending which wasn't you know uh, very satisfying um, but uh, but yeah that, but that's how big a movie it was that they you know basically were willing to accept this and re-release it uh, in this in this new form yeah so pretty much Columbia as you can expect wanted a sequel and they approached Spielberg and you know he wasn't happy the way Jaws 2 turned out and that whole situation so he kind of wanted to ease them away from doing a sequel and he remembered while he was doing tons of research for Close Encounters there was um, you know supposedly like a a real incident about a Kentucky family claimed they had been terrorized by aliens and he kind of never forgot that story and then you know and he kind of pitched to Columbia like what if we do kind of a spin-off and first I believe it was called Watch the Skies and then it turned into Night Skies and the year was supposed to be 1980 uh, Spielberg wasn't going to direct it he was just going to produce it and of course Watch the Skies was an allusion to that famous uh, line in uh, The, the thing. thing Yeah, uh, Christian Nyby or really Howard Hawks The Thing you know Watch, watch the Skies another unfriendly alien invader from the 50s <laughs> And so, yeah, he he first approached Lawrence Kasdan, who was working on the Empire Strikes Back, and then he turned to John Sayles to write the script. And at that time, Sayles was hot off of Piranha. Which is funny, being a Jaws ripoff. (laughs) It's really funny. And, of course, John Sayles would end up to becoming, you know, the big art house writer-director of of the early 80s. I mean, he had done Return of the Sokaka 7, which paved the way for Big Chill. Later on, he would do things like Eight Men Out and and Mate One. Uh, He's not the guy you would associate with genre, although he really made his bones with stuff like Piranha and a lot of Corman. The Howling. Yeah, the Howling. That was the thing, like Alligator, Piranha, the Howling. They were so much better than he had any right to be and it was mostly because of the characters you know well, like, it's interesting too to think about the fact that clearly Spielberg liked Piranha since he hired both Joe Dante <laughs> and John Sayles for projects after that yeah it is a trip right <laughs> and uh, well he may have liked it better than Jaws too. Yeah, I go. mean, there's probably a future <laughs> show in the, pre- the the earlier iteration of Jaws 2 because of course there was a whole nother version before Jean Schwartz came on and changed it. You know, that much darker, yeah. grittier, real yes. version of Jaws 2 that never, you know, got finished. I mean, they had actually gone into production. Yeah. I don't know if that qualifies as a movie never made because they'd actually been shooting it and then the director was replaced. But I, I think that whole Jaws 2 story is so fascinating. It's a, it's brilliant. I mean, and it makes total sense. And it is it is very sad it never got made. And I guess that's a whole other episode. But it, it, it was about, like, what if um, Amity, the island, you know, was shutting down after the incident of the first movie. It's so, what really would have happened. Rather yeah. than no one would come, the tourists would all be scared off, and the town was basically falling apart, and people were moving away because the vacation trade dried up. And uh, well, that was my favorite meme of this recent uh, election cycle: is people <laughs> sharing the one where they pointing out that Murray Hamilton is still the mayor. Yeah, in just <laughs> this is why voting's important. <laughs> exactly, yeah. so why voting's important. I, I love that meme. That was so funny. Exactly. Um, this is why. 
it's important to vote because Murray Hamilton is still the mayor of Amity Island. Yeah. <laughs> but speaking of horror movies, I mean, I think that's one of the interesting thing about Night Skies is that in the studio's desperation to just have more Spielberg close encounters that he sold them on the idea of making it a scary horror movie, basically, and really not true to the spirit of close. Basically, like you're saying, going back to every other kind of alien movie we'd seen before. It's so funny because the Spielberg sensibility wasn't a dark one. And it was that kind of when you wish upon a star, the Disney that, you know, there were scary moments, but ultimately it was very uplifting and redemptive. And so for him to base it, and it's also interesting, he didn't want to direct it, that it was a producer vehicle as Poltergeist would become later and his more dark vehicles. Um, but that he, you know, that he would go in this direction because I think that was what was so amazing about Close Encounters was that it was uplifting and positive and, 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 and you know, it, it spun the traditional trope of the aliens invaders not being here to invade. But I guess throughout the 80s, you can kind of see his dark side a little bit more in some of his films. Well, you know, AI, I mean, it's like, I mean, although that is Kubrick's sensibility more than Spielberg. Yeah. But, yeah, you, you definitely see the darker, the grown-up Spielberg manifest itself in some of these later movies. Yeah, but what I what I love, though, is the, you know, I, I believe the story I heard was or I read was uh, he talked to John Landis and John Landis pointed him in the direction of Rick Baker, bringing him in to design the aliens for Night Skies. And Baker at the time was also working on American Werewolf in London at the same time. And at the same time, he was able to create like five different aliens for Night Skies I and mean, to actually made them. You know, it's so funny. We talk about the genius of Rick Baker and, you know, obviously um, and everybody, you know, sort of feels like, OK, you know, his career began with like sort of King Kong in 76 and stuff. Octoman. What? Octoman. Octoman. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, what he was responsible for, uh, which is not one of the great makeup effects of all time, was Kananga Mr. Big and Live and Let Die. That was Rick Baker. And uh, I didn't know yeah, that. And, and, and Yafet Koto hated hated that uh, makeup effect, uh, you know. And and he says, you know, this is why Guy Hamilton sort of shot around it. And there's so little of uh, Mr. Big because that makeup was so awful. And I guess Rick Baker really hated Yafet Koto, and Yafet Koto did not like, um, you know. And then of course Rick Baker went on to do just brilliant work his whole career. Wow, pretty amazing. Yeah, and he did a he did a remarkable job on those on those aliens, and you know, I mean, I guess we'll get into that later. And he never got credit for designing it either uh, when it did spawn into ET. So, but um, yeah, he um, he was putting together this this team, and he also roped in Ron Cobb to be the director. And so, Ron Cobb, the the concept designer. Yeah. So, so he was going to direct Night Skies. Yep, he was going to be the director. Spielberg only wanted to produce it. Well, at this real. point, because it's funny, because when we think of executive produced by Steven Spielberg that kind of represents the 80s in a way. It was like he really owned the market on a certain type of film. But I think up until then, he had not really had great success with the movies he just produced. But I'm trying to even think of what those well, we movies... Well, had the Zemeckis movies, which were not successful. That was it. It was, I, I want to hold your hand, hand and use cars. cars. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why he had such trouble getting Zemeckis hired movies, for Back to the Future. Money. Yeah. I mean, he had to go and direct Romancing the Stone before they were willing to, to hire him. It, you're right. It wasn't until the 80s with Goonies and he had that run of Amblin pictures mm-hmm. that are so beloved that you know he became a, a respected producer as well as director. 
Yeah, it was kind of like the thing with Poltergeist. He didn't want to direct it, but he did want to produce. You mm-hmm. know? But also and ended I, up doing both. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because also I, I guess what what was it back then? You weren't allowed to have two movies direct two. I, I you know what? I, I'm not 100. percent Now sure. he's like doing a movie a month. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, after you have a year like Schindler's and Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. where you have probably the, you know the, the great artistic movie of the year, well, the Oscar winner, mm-hmm. and then you have the great. Um, um, like cultural uh, touchstone, cultural touchstone yeah. major zeitgeist-defining movie in Jurassic. I mean, you can't quite top that. <laughs> it's a pretty good year. <laughs> it was yeah. a pretty good year. Yeah, he tried it again with Amistad and Lost World mm. a couple of years later. So. <laughs> the less said about that, the better. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I mean, that that acrobatic sequence is pretty great, though, in Lost World. Guys. Come on. Yeah, come on. And who doesn't love uh, Anthony Hopkins as John Quincy Adams? Come on. <laughs> Some serious Although, what was chops. The year of Munich, because Munich was another two film year and that was a great oh, year yeah. was that um the the his sci-fi one war of the Worlds, minority report oh, no, maybe it, it, it might have it? been it yeah. was more either war world's minority report and munich that was a good year and then um w- w- the year of the paper did he do something else did, was there something else the year no because that was the other that was like yeah maybe not i, I <laughs> yeah. know there have been a couple of times uh where he did the the double you know two films a year which is 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 pretty uh pretty extraordinary for any director, let alone him, you know, yeah. to, to pull off. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so back to Night Skies, we have a pretty wild story about aliens invading a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. And I you know, up to this point, like I'm not sure if we yet seen a storyline like that or have we in, in the fifties, but you know, I guess you know, of course later on we'd get like critters and signs and the British film Isolation. Yeah, Invaders from Mars had a little quality because it was more suburbia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and even something like I guess, you know, Village and Children of the Dam. But it wasn't quite that M night Shyamalan, we're in a farmhouse and yeah. aliens are um so it was a very novel concept at the time. And I think part of that also was because you know, everything became cabin in the woods, farmhouse in the woods in the 80s when people had access to making movies cheaply. You know, ba- back in the 60s and 70s, you didn't have a ton of people who were running out like Raimi's, you know, like Raimi did, uh, you know, and making these really low budget, super eight, 16 millimeter movies that actually could get theatrically released. It was still the province of professional filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And I think you start to see these smaller, more claustrophobic things when people needed to make really cheap movies. So you got Charlie Band and all these people making these farmhouses and cabins mm-hmm. and very isolated where you need limited cast and can spend limited amount of money. Yeah, it's very true. And, um, and, it, and I guess, well, I mean, I, this looks like it's like a year. I mean, it looks like it was 1980, so Alien just came out. And which was shocking to me is that, you know, there were so many Alien ripoffs, but Night Skies feels nothing like Alien at all. Like It's, it's compl- a weird movie because it's like it, it, it is very Spielbergian in its initial setup, even though, you know, not suburbia. It's out in the country, but it's like setting up this kind of almost Altman-esque world of all these, like, a very lived-in world, like Amity felt in Jaws, where the opening of the script is just um, this, like, kind of, like, 17, 8-year-old girl, Tess, and her, like, autistic little brother, Jaybird, are just going around this farm community, and we're, we meet the people who hang out at the, like, corner shop, and we meet her family, and then we start introducing these weird, mysterious little elements of cattle mutilations, but... More like Jaws than Close Encounters. Like the kettle mutilations are like really messed up. Yeah. Like the face is all ripped off. They specifically note that they're like genitalia is cut out. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which I guess that's the John Sales yeah. <laughs> element in there. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, yeah, no, you're right. It's like um, one cow, the skin on its neck is from shoulders to chin is just removed, you know, and... Um, that definitely feels like it, it is showing the alien influence. And it's, it's you know, it's hard to remember, but in that period of time, there were so many alien ripoffs. I mean, you had Corman mm-hmm. churning them out for everything from Galaxy of Terror to uh, Forbidden World. and But there were yeah. so many of these alien ripoffs oh. where it's like, oh, the more we can shock. And it's <laughs> funny because Alien wasn't a particularly huge grossing movie either. So it's so funny that there were all these films that were attempting to rip off Alien. My favorite thing about Galaxy of Terror is I love Galaxy of Terror. Not only was Corman going to make Alien, but he had the original Star Beast draft. And he, if you watch, if you read the original Star Beast draft and you watch Galaxy of Terror, it's like the same rhythm of it. They had a Alien pyramid in Alien that they cut out, and Corman put it in Galaxy of Terror. <laughs> you know, and they have to scale the pyramid the same way they scale it in O'Bannon Star uh, Star Beast draft, where they have to climb up and. Because originally in Starbeast, they found eggs in a ceremonial pyramid. It wasn't like termites in a derelict. It was com- when they left the derelict, they found the pyramid. And Corman, yeah, he took the whole um, setup of it. And uh, yeah, I, I love that film, but. You're I guess the one. I'm the only You're one. You're a big Aaron Moran fan. So yeah. Oh, yeah. I guess I shouldn't say that. Yeah, I, I, that's not a very pleasant scene. So, but And then James Cameron did the effects. So, all right. And then so. Yeah, so yeah, there was a lot of alien ripoffs and that's the and that's the funny thing is Josh and I were discussing which is interesting about the script too is just like all the all the the death is like the animals. There's no body count in this movie whatsoever. Yeah, because when I was reading the script for the first time it's like there's so many characters. I was I was almost like, "Wow, is this going to turn into like a slasher movie level bloodbath where we have this big victim pool um but it's just animal mutilations throughout and the aliens don't even really show up till like halfway through it's an odd structure it's almost from dusk till dawn ish mm, where it's two separate movies. <laughs> where there's like the first half of the movie that's about this family with like a lot of family members there's like a husband wife i think three kids a grandma then there's also the sheriff and like the sheriff's son who's in love with the daughter and so on and so forth and then about midway through, after they're just kind of like, oh, there's cattle mutilations and the sun sees like a weird cloud in the sky, then this huge group of aliens who John Sayles all names in the script. So there's like Scar is the leader. There's a guy named Hoodoo. There's like a lovable, nice one, I think, named Benny. Is that Buddy? Buddy. <laughs> um, and Squirt. It's really <laughs> strange. <laughs> And then and they're yeah, and they're just terrorizing the family. Basically, it is very much like critters in that sense that we never really leave the farmhouse either. It's crazy. When I read the script, I had all the characters in, from critters in my head. I was imagining in the script because it 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 totally feels like that. You know, the the the, the teenager is the same age as Scott Grimes, and the daughter's the same age. The you know the dad is the farmer, and I can see him in his overalls. And Dee Wallace is the mom. You can. It, the only thing that's missing, like you said, is like the grandmother. In a way, I don't know if you saw the South Factory just put out a Critters box set. Yeah, oh, is, wow. I don't know who is clamoring for a Critters box set, but they they, they put one out. So. I'm a fan of Critters too. So they have the giant Super Critters ball. I do like Billy Zane. So what? Uh, I mean, why do you think that the film 
sort of unraveled, you know, in terms of not happening. I mean, it has the pedigree of Spielberg being involved, Ron Cobb, who is the great concept designer of the 70s. I mean, he did so much work on Alien. And people always talk about the genius of Giger, which, of course, he was. But then Ron Cobb did so much of all the spaceship and the environments and the non-Alien stuff, which is also amazing. Oh, yeah. Uh, When Graham and I have been looking over here on my iPad at some of these... The Rick Baker alien designs. It's pretty amazing stuff. Um, and like, yeah, like wow. that's that's the the evil. Oh my leader god, guy. it is ET. Yeah, yes. this very ET esque, which we'll no, no, get no, into. It's not ET esque. It's evil ET. That's remarkable. I've never seen that. And, um, and if you watch ET, the ending credit. <laughs> He's yeah. totally. It's pissed off ET. Yeah, it's oh, yeah. pissed off ET. And Carlo... it, it, it's Botanicus's, is you know older pissed off cousin. <laughs> yeah, and um. The gentleman that did the, the effects for Close wow. Encounters and E.T. got all the credit for designing Carlo E.T. Carlo Rimbaldi. Yes, at the ending of E.T. And Rick Baker never got credit for designing that. And to the question of like... Wow, this is really cool. I mean, this, these designs are... I mean, here we are on an audio podcast. We'll, we'll post them. Shut up about how good we'll post them on uh, Instagram. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll put these on... Can we put these on social on your... Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, because this it, is... It is shocking, though, that Rick Baker wouldn't have gotten credit for that because that's mm-hmm. clearly E.T. Yeah. Now, Rick, Rick, Absolutely, Rick yeah. Baker says uh, he looks like Edward G. Robinson. Uh, he does. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he looks like the alien Edward G. Robinson. Why, you dirty human, I've come to... It's like, wow. So, in some ways, Edward G. Robinson has the legacy of um, abstractly leading to the design of E.T. and Chief Wiggum from... <laughs> but I was going to go back to your question of, like, what what do we think happened? Because I was saying earlier that it, I think it's just the power of the money machine that was Close Encounters that they kind of signed on for all this stuff. And then I just wonder if at some point the studio's, like, looking at the script, and you're like, okay, so half of the movie is this kind of charming, mysterious Spielberg movie, and then all of a sudden these, like, creepy aliens show up and just kind of mess around with them and nothing really happens. Yeah. I just wonder if they they're just ultimately were like, I don't know what this movie is in some ways. <laughs> well, it's like the aliens come, they mess with the family, they split when the police come. And then when the police leave, the aliens come back and terrorize the family again until the ending of the film. Well, in the very ending of the film is basically, it's like, uh, what was that Joe Dante movie? Explorers, mm, yeah. where they meet the aliens, they think, are like this intelligent, you right. know, come emissaries, and then the aliens' like dad shows up and gets mad at them. That's kind of what the end of Night Skies feels, is this, this other bigger alien shows up and is basically just like, you jerks to our God, aliens. That's the plot of an old Star Trek episode of uh, Squire of Gothos, where you find out that William Campbell's Trelane is just a young child, and his parents show up at the end after he's been messing around with the Enterprise crew for an hour and says, come home, Trelane. Stop <laughs> messing with your toys. It's like, it's it's you know it's a great ending. It's very Twilight Zone-esque. But um, th- this is so fascinating uh, because, I mean, you, you talk about this, uh, this ending with the, you know, it's 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 really kind of crazy. Super crazy. Well, and then there's Jaybird, which is the um, autistic. The most interesting thing about the script, now looking back at it, is it has this really honest portrayal of severe autism in it, mm. which you kind of keep assuming is going to have this happy ending where like the aliens fix him right. or something, <laughs> but they don't, and it's kind of a bummer. But his one thing is because he can't talk. His autism is that severe. 
Um, and the big super alien like puts its hand on his head and uses him as like a speaker to deliver like a message to the rest yeah. of the family. Wow. wow. Because the, 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 the aliens at the end, the good aliens have no mouth. Yeah. So they can only speak through the kid. And it's this really yeah. weird. Uh, we get the reason, part of the reason for the audience here that we brought on uh, Mr. Skipper, our actor Emotional friend support. here, um, is, <laughs> is to read some of this stuff out loud for you. Um, but I think we should maybe include the the speech that the alien gives because it's oh I very love to strange. hear it. I mean, this is just I'd love to read it. Cuckoo for cocoa puffs. Uh, this is the night sky's jaybird speech. I am come. There has been a hurting. There has been a hurting. This place, there has been, this is a sorrow, a sorrow. Many of us, not you, many, many kinds, a sorrow. This is not again. We are seeing. This is hurting is not again. This is needed. We are many, not you. We watch, we take, we take. We know you. Across time, we know you. Across time, we watch. We take this hurting is not again. You again are alone. Alone from not you. Across time, you will know. But, uh, yeah, and then, and then it's this really kind of emotionally devastating moment too because the kid kind of comes to life while it's talking and then when the alien's basically like well I'm done saying my piece then the kid like grabs the hand back so he can finally be like I love you family and then let's go and then goes back to not being able to talk like that's oh the resolution God. it's like heartbreaking yeah it's also heartbreaking too because um the whole towards the ending of the film the aliens are trying to get the artistic kid and they're trying to pull one of the things they did to one of the cattles in the beginning is that you see the cattle ha is missing like grapefruit sized skin from his head. And so they kidnap Jaybird and right. they're trying to put the circle on his head and then Buddy, the friendly alien, saves him. And the ending is Buddy, the friendly alien, is just wandering around the woods. It's almost like it's like this was the prequel to E.T. Yeah. in some ways. Huh. And you feel so bad for him at the ending. This poor, he's just yeah. like wandering around he's the stuck woods. stuck on Earth. Yeah. I thought that an audience wants to go see in, in the shadow of Close Encounters a movie about cattle mutilations. I mean, it's like, <laughs> I, it's and, such, it's an R, clearly an R-rated movie at It that seems point. like by the end of the development process, everybody... <laughs> kind of wised up, including Spielberg. Right, right. Because yeah. um, the other interesting thing about it is, is like an artifact of things that he clearly used for future projects, E.T. Mm -hmm. being right. the biggest example, but it's also like them terrorizing the house is so gremlins, mm. and Scar mm. is very much like Stripe of just kind of the the jerk so leader of this So you say, could this picture still be made one day? It's kind of like, not really, because he used elements for yes. E.T., elements for Gremlins, mm -hmm. you know, and cherry-picked sort of the good stuff. And Critters, I mean, I don't know what extent right. they even knew about the project, but like that, it just is Critters and, in a lot of ways. Poltergeist as well, I could yeah, see. Yeah, it's true. I could see um, the some The family stuff. being terrorized. I think there's even a line in Night Skies where one of the characters says they're here. Mm. Yes, the crazy grandmother yells they're here twice. Yes. Well, yeah, and they're also, here, they're here. Poltergeist never um, 
you know, is unlike, you know, more like that, you talk about the From Death Till Dawn, Dawn paradigm where it's a family drama and then it becomes a horror movie the same way that was like a Tarantino movie and then becomes a vampire movie. Um, I wonder if, you know, if you look at Poltergeist, a lot of that is before anything happens, it's them having the remote control war and mm-hmm. all this fun stuff developing the characters, which is why you're invested in them. But, all you know, you forget also in the, the mid-70s, there was a big phenomenon of these hauntings because Amityville Horror had just happened in mm-hmm. Long Island and become a very successful book. And then in 79, became a blockbuster movie. It was the biggest independent movie ever released at that time. So I want, you know, and that was about the haunting of a house. In this case, it's aliens. In that case, it was ghosts or demons or possessions or whatever nonsense that was all but i just wonder if that also was an influence i think so i think so well i was gonna say even the other weird thing is there's a lot of stuff that seems ripped off from close encounters in it (laughs) like there's a whole thing where um the kids are driving in their car and they see weird lights and the car stops working and there's a whole Uh thing where the aliens are outside and there's all these lights shining in and the uh jaybird the autistic kid like walks outside just right. like the like Carrie Guffey does yeah. in Close Encounters. Wow, this is fascinating. So what is the legacy of this movie? This led to another really interesting unmade Spielberg project. Yeah, so what what ended up happening was uh, Spielberg was wa- working on Raiders of the Lost Ark and I guess between melting Nazis' faces and um, Harrison Ford knocking them into plane propellers exactly (laughs) he wanted to do something a little bit more easy going and um just so happens uh harrison ford's wife was visiting the set uh, melissa matheson and she read night skies and she loved the scenes between buddy and jaybird because there was actually a few touching scenes where they're finger painting painting together together. yeah Yeah, they're actually really touching scenes in the script and um, yeah, and like Jaybird puts paint on the buddy's face, you know, which remains on his face throughout the rest of the movie. And so she pointed that out to Spielberg. And so they started like, you know what, let's 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 do a family alien film instead of like a, a, a horror film. And when they got back to um, when they got back, they, you know, Rick Baker was not into the idea at all. And he was very upset and so, and and plus, he was working on American Werewolf London anyway. So that's when Spielberg went to Carlo. Um, I've space on his last name. Rambini is it? Carlo Rambaldi. Rambaldi. My apologies. Yeah. The Rambaldi uh, device. Yeah, he started. He worked on the Alien, and yeah, and then we got ET. You know, so Baker I can't was out. Josh just made an Alias reference. <laughs> yeah, sorry. No, no, sorry, I lo- I loved Alias, and in fact, it's one of those shows that somehow I guess it wasn't streaming a lot or whatever. It just it, it doesn't get a lot of love these days, and mm-hmm. I, I just I loved Alias. I thought Alias was great. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so we got you know, and then sales couldn't work on it either because I believe the the project you mentioned early, the Sakakas Seven, he was working on. So yeah, so E. T. I mean, so Night Skies transformed into E. T. So they just took all the nice alien elements and put it in. You know, isn't it interesting that like because you know the thing Carpenter's the thing came out at the same time as E. T. Mm-hmm. And I remember one of the big criticisms of that was people like, no, we like family friendly aliens, and mm-hmm. we don't want horror aliens. And it's interesting that this new like family friendly alien idea that sort of take like took over the whole alien genre uh, came out of them wanting to do a horror movie originally. That's a really great point because, um, you know, it not only came out at the same time, it came out a week after E.T. So, you know, when a lot of people say, why did the thing bomb? 
you had E.T., which at the time was a huge sensation. It became the top-grossing movie of all time for a while, beating Star Wars, and you know what, and did until the special editions came out. And then Titanic, which sunk, you know, E.T. But at the time, it was this huge, huge, huge no, no blockbuster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, but the thing came out literally the following week, you know, from Universal, and. Uh, and it, it tanked. It was hard, you know. It was, it was a financial disaster. Now it's a beloved horror mm-hmm. movie, and I, I love both those movies—the original thing and the remake. But um, at the time, it was just a disaster because no one wanted to see an evil alien after the charm <laughs> and you know delightful uh, uh, you know poet poeticism and of uh, of ET, which the world fell in love with. What it, what it also killed besides the thing was a movie I'm fascinated by called The Tourist, which was about a group of exiled aliens living in Manhattan. And it was all the aliens were designed by Giger. Sounds like a Pixar movie. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. It was it was highly sexual. It was oh, it was District okay. Nine with sex. And you can look up online some of the images of Giger designed like an alien kind of going down on another alien. And it's really just dist- it's oh, like wow. Giger that would is, think yeah. that way. That seems like an inappropriate title for it. The Taurus. Yeah. Yeah. So I was thinking of the Johnny Depp Angelina yeah. Jolie movie. <laughs> what well, was it based on that title in your initial one sense? What was that movie called? Spaced Invaders? It was just like about <laughs> yeah. a bunch of goofy aliens. Yeah. Which of... is not to be confused with uh, Strange Invaders, which is actually a terrific little sci-fi yes. movie, oh, yeah. um, which uh, which came out around that time, I think. Yeah, I think you're right, around the time Without Warning and Extra. Yeah, you're right. It was like Strange Invaders. That, that had a scene in that that disturbed me as a kid, when the kid, like, melts. <laughs> that scene. I haven't like, watched it a long time. Right? I gotta watch that again. It was one of those that was always on HBO, so. Yeah, so... Yes. Yeah, ET came out and it made uh, owned the world. I still yeah, have oh, my no. ET uh, shampoo bottle. To See, this I think you say your Atari twenty six hundred came. I wish that it's wasn't probably... put in the uh, <laughs> in the pit. And if people don't know that story, uh, writer Zach Penn made a pretty great documentary about the infamous Game ET. Over. Yeah, <laughs> it's wonderful. Great. It's great. I think it's on Netflix, or you can buy it on Amazon. But that's a great documentary. Yeah. Have you oh. ever actually played that game? It's it it is indeed. The worst game. Yeah, ever. I mean, it's, it's pretty awful. <laughs> yeah, I play. It's pretty awful. Oh, my! My favorite thing actually too was when Spielberg came back and and pitched Columbia to do ET. Columbia turned him down because they said we have Starman. It's too similar. Yes. We want to do this instead. <laughs> right. And wow. he took it to Universal and made this blockbuster. Um, and it's not. It's not Starman. It's John Carpenter's Starman, <laughs> which you know ended up doing fine. It made money, but if they had the it's choice crazy. between that or ET, yes. they would have taken ET in a heartbeat. But um, you know, Starman was successful. It mm-hmm. was not a bomb. And then you know, ET grossed three hundred and fifty-nine million in eighty-two. You know, which is insane back yeah, then. Yeah, eighty-two dollars. And it was re-released is... a couple of times too. Mm-hmm. And then there's the one where you know you go into the mothership. Oh no, wait, that's. Yeah. <laughs> but there is the wonderful mm-hmm. theme park attraction at Universal Studios. May it rest in peace, where you get to save ET. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very excited about back that ride. The... As a he thanks you. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. Thank you, Graham. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. You know. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I guess that is the closest sequel we got because the, the theme park attraction. Yeah, because ET two Nocturnal Fears did not come out. Wait, it was called Nocturnal Fears. ET Nocturnal, Nocturnal Fears. Fears. Yes, ET two Nocturnal Fears. 
<laughs> and it was written in January, I mean, in July, right after, you know, the movie came out in, um, what was it, June 11th? June June 11th, right, because it was a week after Star Trek II and, and Poltergeist, <laughs> and uh, it was the week before The Thing. Well, look, that was the greatest summer of, of genre movies ever, so, yes. you know. Road Warrior, Sword well, Road Warriors that year, Conan, Sword and Sorcerer, Tron, mm-hmm. Mega Force. Okay, that doesn't count. Rocky Three, <laughs> Fast yes. Times. I mean, the list goes on. It's insane. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, so yeah, so in July seventeenth um, is the date of the treatment, and it's written by Spielberg and Melissa Matheson, and it is. Like, I don't know, man. I compare it to Martyrs. Like, what would you compare <laughs> it to? <Martyrs. laughs> I mean, it is, you know, even just starting with the Nocturnal Fears subtitle, it's moments like this that reassure me, though, as a, someone who works in a creative field, that uh, people like Spielberg don't only have good ideas. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's a strange approach. In some ways, it kind of shows his mental like zigging and zagging from he did Close Encounters which was a pleasant alien movie so he's like I'm gonna do a dark one about mean aliens with night skies but then got that out of the system and did another nice alien movie with E.T. but then for some reason his instincts on the sequel were like let's get some mean aliens back in there dissecting people and structurally too this is kind of weird you know in the same way as like Night Skies was it's kind of weird how it's sort of you know, it, it, you know, starts with the same kind of, you know, here's, you know, this ship arriving. But then you have it's it's sort of like these big chunks of of, you know, the family stuff and then big chunks of like torture. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure this is just a treatment. It probably would have evolved if they did a script. But based just on this, it feels more like the first half of a movie because not a lot even happens well, didn't in it. Didn't he say publicly he would never do a sequel to E.T.? So he sort of disowns that this ever happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, could it have been, now here's just a question, some way of getting the studio off his back? Might have been. Like, you what, know? what's that Lou Reed album where he just, like, recorded horrible noises to fulfill? to fulfill his contract? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, was it an attempt to say, that you want a sequel? Well, here it is, something you'll never make. Because, I mean... People fell in love with E.T. and Elliot mm-hmm. and, and, and that story of those characters. And, you know, you really felt for him when he was captured by the government and the whole Peter Coyote thing. And you're like, oh, my God, what's what's happening? And, you know, it all has a happy ending. Do you really want to see an abduction movie where, you know, the characters and there's a scene where Henry Thomas or uh, Elliot is, is captured, right? And, yeah. And, I mean, experimented it's, it's on? a lift from uh, the Night Skies scene where they're going to... Uh, like dissect Jaybird. It's basically it's like it's either stuff that he couldn't get out of his system, or yeah, I like the conspiracy theory that this was a way to tank the project from ever happening. No, I could totally see it because he he tortures Elliot, I believe, until he blacks out. Like yeah. you know, he, he's torturing all their friends from the first movie. This is know? the worst idea in the history of bad ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and to be clear, ET is not torturing the friends. These no. this is the evil. Is it Cor- Corel? Something. I, I almost oh. just wish it was Scar yeah, you're right. it, again. Yeah. Just using the names Corel. from yeah. Carnivorous. Oh, this is also, uh, even though I think it's technically revealed in the video game, but this is the movie where they name E.T. as well. His name is Zrek. E.T. 2, this is Elliot's questioning sequence. It is now time for Elliot to be questioned. The aliens show no mercy when he replies with the truth. The questioning process intensifies when they learn from his memory that he has dealt directly with Zrek. 
The pain is tremendous for Elliot, and he breaks down and begins screaming for E.T.'s help. Elliot blacks out, but the echoes of his last cry can be heard from a distance. At this point, we follow, upward, the echoing cry for E.T. into the cosmos, where the painful cry seems to die. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. E.T. has a name. Sorry. Which I always think is a mistake when a character's already made it through one whole movie with you not needing to know his real name. I mean, I thought Botanicus was silly in the theme park ride. <laughs> yeah. It's like E.T. was, oh my God. And then um, they do bring back from Night Skies in the in the treatment about cattle mutations and mutilations. Mutilations, excuse me. And okay. and and the way they even do it, they use in Night Skies. They use a hypnotic hum, and they do in this version as well. So I guess that also did carry along. I want to point out that E.T. is the most beloved family film since The Wizard of Oz. Whoever thought the way to do a sequel? I mean, same thing though that happened with Return to Oz, right? Yes. You, you make a sequel to Wizard of Oz, Return to Oz, and it's one of the darkest, most <laughs> you know, sinister and sadistic movies. Character who can replace her own head from a room full of <laughs> severed heads, and, 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 Futurama and, uh, style. Dorothy you know, getting shock who, treatments. Who thinks the kids that grew up on Wizard of Oz want to see that? I am like Return to Oz, but I'm weird that way. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, the the you know to think that you sequelize this movie, this fa- beloved family movie. With a movie with filled with vivisections and calculations and torture, it's insane. <laughs> it's sort of interesting though when you think about it. Going as an artist, like what do you do when you have something that's this very sort of schmaltzy, like beloved, like family thing? Like, well, I don't know. Let's go dark. Yeah, you know? like Bob Dylan in concert always just <laughs> sort of messes with the audience. Where it's like oh, he sings all his slow songs fast and his fast songs slow, so it's not even what you want. <laughs> well, he's to so hear. bored. That's why Dylan's exactly. always awful in concert. <laughs> and then like it's like a solar eclipse. Like every like eight years, like all of a sudden he gives a great concert. Everybody's like, oh, I went to the one <laughs> Dylan concert where it was great. <laughs> yeah, but it was also a decade of weird, uh, of dark sequels. Anyway, Empire Strikes Back. You're. T- um, Wrath of Khan is dark compared to the yeah. first one as well. Ish. Uh, ish. Well, I mean, the ear scene is pretty messed up. Um, you know, so Babe Pig in the City. The, the, well, that's another know. weird, like, <laughs> I mean, Babe Pig in all, I hate it. And it's like, I, you know, Babe is charming and wonderful and endearing. And then you do Pig in the City, which is this dark, twisted, mm-hmm. messed up movie. Yeah, so we did have some well, dark And I sequels. love Babe in the City, but it also didn't get nominated for Best Picture and yeah. it bombed. So <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> I think Spielberg might have found himself in a similar situation, especially due that it kind of culminates with like, E.T. busting in to like rescue Elliot and it's just like all these things where it's anything you loved about the first movie this is not really the movie when I was reading this treatment I kept imagining at the end when you know E.T. like you said comes in to rescue them I imagined him like walking in with like a Rambo style machine gun like that's what it reads (laughs) it's weird Uh, E.T.'s heroic return uh, after the interrogation Elliot is mentally and physically drained now because he is no longer of any use to the aliens, they carry his limp body to a light cage where Michael and Gertie are already resting. Suddenly, we hear a strange resonating hum throughout the ship, yet it is not coming from within the ship. All the evil aliens freeze. A hatch opens to reveal E.T. with his glowing finger raised and his heart light pulsating. Elliot awakes immediately. E.T. advances toward the captives and deactivates the light cages. He and Elliot embrace with tears in their eyes. Elliot, Michael, Gertie, Steve, Tyler, and Greg leave the evil mothership and wait for E.T. to come out after reprogramming the alien's navigation controls. E.T. exits the ship 
and rejoins his faithful friends. Soon after, Mary and Keys arrive and are reunited again with a magical little alien named E.T. After saying their tearful goodbyes, E.T.'s own mothership descends from the heavens to take the place of the evil ship that is now en route to a remote corner of the galaxy. There is hope in everyone's eyes as they all, again, behold the picturesque departure of their favorite alien. Dreams can come true. Because it's like, like E.T.'s not, you know, speaking of Rambo and sequels, it was like when Gizmo gets all Ramboed out mm-hmm. in uh, Gremlins 2. That's in Gremlins 2, right? Yeah. Not the first one. But, like, Gizmo's that kind of character. You could yeah. name anything, and it was in Gremlins, Gremlins 2. 2 yeah. You could just say any reference to anything, and somehow it was in Gremlins 2, which I love, which yeah. made no money and is also a exactly. ridiculous movie. But I, I love Gremlins 2, and, uh, I mean... But it's true, you know. We look at all these movies, and they always went somewhere because I think there was this this tendency in sequels back in the '70s to always keep remaking the same movie and do the same thing. And the '80s, it, there was pushback. It was like we're going to do something completely different. And so you had like Gremlins two, and you had all these movies. We were just talking on another podcast about you know Airplane, where Airplane two is literally the same movie as Airplane mm-hmm. one, same jokes, same everything, it's except just it's in space. space instead of you know. <laughs> and 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 it was like that was sort of like the, kind of the end of like this repeating making the same movie over and over. And uh, but the eighties, yeah, you had these things they wanted to get as far away because a lot of times these directors who didn't have control in the first movie were suddenly given all this autonomy because the movie was successful and. Their base, their instincts couldn't be reined in, and they did this crazy stuff. <laughs> crazy. Well, there's well, there's way more torture in the movie than there is ET. Period. Uh, this is ET two. This is the torture sequence. When the children regain their senses, they are surrounded by the evil alien creatures who were hiding in the forest. The creatures are carrying some kind of dagger. Elliot advances in a friendly gesture, but barely escapes being beaten or even killed. Elliot advances in a friendly gesture, but barely escapes being bitten or even killed by the alien's razor-sharp teeth. Several of the aliens bear their fangs from time to time to show them they mean business. Carell orders that the children be brought aboard. Reluctantly, Elliot and his friends follow. In the hours that follow, Elliot and his companions are questioned extensively. The aliens will not accept the truth in their responses. While one child is interrogated, another is being examined. Gertie is crying and calling for Mary and E.T. for help. The others endure, as their wargaming experiences have taught them. Yeah, like, I mean, E.T.'s not in it, like, at all. No. Not, yeah, <laughs> or I should true. say, uh, now uh, the mom is dating Peter Coyote's character. Well, from, and he's an abusive that? father who's molesting. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that would have been in keeping with the movie's no, like, choices. The, like, the movie practically opens with the mom getting a divorce. Like, the dad mm-hmm. comes back from being gone, immediately divorces her, and goes, leaves the family. Goes back mm-hmm. again. Yeah, and, and so it's like, and then she's with Peter Coyote. And, oh, then, and the kids are all depressed, too, yeah, because every too. summer they keep waiting for E.T. to come back and he never, and he does. never does oh my god so just like, yeah, i mean you know i like the plot of like mary poppins too it's like oh now the father's lost his way and mary poppins is going to come to set things right or you know what was that mary recently poppins come back the winnie the pooh movie christopher children. robin yeah where ewan mcgregor <laughs> plays christopher robin who's you know working too hard and he needs his childhood to come back and remind him of what kind of person he is and winnie the pooh and everybody show up. that to me is how you do a sequel to a kid's film hey henry you thomas is start dissecting yeah. <laughs> you know henry Thomas. <laughs> I would say Henry Thomas is having a uh, career resurgence. 
think there's still time for the sad <laughs> adult Elliot and E.T. to come back. come back. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me. The Christopher me. Robin version of E.T. too. <laughs> Are you listening, Spielberg? <laughs> I guess, I guess you it, know, Josh is available. Yeah, I'm available. Sonic is done. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it all comes full circle because with, you know, he got Close Encounters sequel away from Columbia and he managed, you know, he didn't want to do anything dark, but then he goes off and makes the a movie so dark it get it, it creates the PG thirteen with uh, Temple of Doom. So I guess he was able to go dark again after this treatment. And but do it's so something. funny now he disowns Temple of Doom, which is weird because I love Temple of Doom. And Me too. I, I know a lot of people that do, and, and we think it's a much better movie than Last Crusade. And but boy, mm-hmm. when you you talk to Spielberg, he's like, oh, I wish I'd never made that. And well, that's terrible. why I wonder if he'd made. Because he, he has a lot of those comments now in his older age about how mm-hmm. he wouldn't have had Richard Dreyfus get into the spaceship at the end of Close right. Encounters. If he'd made this E.T. too, considering that he replaced guns with walkie-talkies <laughs> right, right. When, he, when he digitally remastered E.T., it's like, what would he have thought of this movie? I don't know. Like, one of the aliens has a dagger, too, like he yeah. explains, dagger. which I love. Oh it's like, He's got a butterfly knife. <laughs> oh He's God. doing Maybe tricks. it's the mirror universe. I don't know. Oh Cuts Elliot's God. nose like Roman Polanski did to Jack Nicholson in Chinatown. <laughs> has a bandage on his nose. Yeah. You know what happens to nosy kids? No- nosy kids, huh? <laughs> nosy kids, yeah. Exactly. Oh, my God. Wow, you really are delivering the goods on this show, guys. Let me tell you. I mean, this is something I knew very little about, and I wish I knew less now than I did when we started the show. You can't. You're destroying my childhood. Too. There's, there's another another fun element of this of this treatment that I I really loved was that how it it explains this like greater mythology of the ET like race where they've been at war with like it's like the the loving like plant eating hippie ETs versus the carnivorous evil dagger wielding ETs and they've been <laughs> oh at war God. for decades. This is the ET two alien intro. The spaceship, nestled in the forest clearing surrounded by massive redwoods, seems to be showing signs of life. Movement can be detected within the ship. The aliens on board are evil. They have landed on Earth in response to distress signals designating its present coordinates. These aliens are searching for a stranded extraterrestrial named Zrek, who is sending a call for help. The evil creatures are carnivorous. Their leader, Corel, commands his crew to disperse into the forest to acquire food. As the squat aliens leave the gangplank, each one emits a hypnotic hum which has a paralyzing effect on the surrounding wildlife. These creatures are an albino fraction, a mutation, of the same civilization E.T. belongs to, and the two separate groups have been at war for decades. It's yeah. like the Dark Crystal. Oh, my yeah. God. It's so Dark Crystal, and it's like, uh, well, the vegetarians are fighting the carnivores, <laughs> yeah. and it's just like, oh, my God. Yeah, they have sharp... Oh, yeah, the, the first thing it does when uh, Elliot approaches them is that it atta- it bites him, Yeah, and it almost kills him. And Elliot's going towards them thinking, oh, this is a, yeah. a sweet-looking E.T. creature. He's like going, oh, I'm so happy to see you. <laughs> the thing attacks him. Yeah. Like, these kids, like, they're sad after the first one because they just had this amazing emotional experience with E.T. Now that would be like jaded and screwed up after this imagine one. imagine the ride at Universal Studios and now we're in the dissection chamber. Yeah. So like you like being turned into a minion, now get dissected by aliens. Yeah, it's like, oh my God. Watch C. This Thomas Howell. Guys, get... this is fantastic. <laughs> Torture. Yeah, isn't there a thing where, yeah, Gertie, Gertie is crying and calling for Mary and E.T. for help? <laughs> 
Well, I mean, I hate, I hate to say it. I think Gertie would have gone down a similar path as Drew Barrymore in real life <laughs> after this experience. I mean, like she wasn't screwed up enough. Imagine yeah. what this movie would have done to the poor girl. Wow. Well, guys, this is this is fantastic. So, Night Skies and E.T. Two, two movies. I, I don't know if we should call the show best movies never made because <laughs> I don't know if either qualifies. I would have watched the hell out of ET. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Well, well, thank you so much for shining a light on these two uh, unproduced films. I mean, it, this is wild. Thanks for giving us the opportunity to talk about it. And Graham, thank you for coming. And thanks for letting me tag along. Reading this was really stuff uh, cool. for us. Oh yeah, it was great to hear that stuff from the treatment. That you know, thanks for uh, you know. It also gives people an insight into how a treatment works and is adapted. You know, it's basically an outline for a movie, and then in, that gets approved by the studio. They give notes, and then you do another treatment. Then you do another. Then you get cut off. No, and then you write the um, you know the first draft screenplay. And so, fortunately, I don't think this ever went to script. Right? This no, is, like, I do no. think it probably would have changed a lot but it's interesting to see where their minds were at when they first started thinking about it and probably why they, why they stopped thinking about yeah, it yeah. <laughs> yeah it dies here it's like no other mention of et2 anywhere it's just kind of i mean with this treatment it's just kind of buried it in the desert along with the atari game <laughs> yeah i mean because after et it made you know we said over 300 million dollars in 82 he could have got this made there's no i mean oh, as dark sequel and yeah as long as it had the name et on it i mean this Mm-hmm. Made Reese's Pieces a uh, legitimate contender to M and M's, the ET bump. And what are some of the uh, the movies we might uh, hear more about in future episodes? Oh, lots of good stuff. We yeah. want to talk with uh, William Malone about his movie Dead Star, which eventually mutated into the James Spader vehicle Supernova. Oh my God! Okay. Um, like we're hoping movie. to get Fred Decker on to talk about his Johnny Quest movie. Mm-hmm. Possibly Adam Rifkin to discuss his Masters of the Universe. And but there's, this, I mean, they, they tried to make Creature from the Black Lagoon like ten different yes. times with so many <laughs> John Carpenter, Guillermo del Toro, like and the Mummy. Yeah, the Mummy throughout the '90s before the Brendan Fraser one. There was, you know, between Sam Raimi and. Uh, McGarris. There was tons of people attached to the Mummy franchise. Well, if I could put in a vote, I'd love to hear about the uh, unproduced third Timothy Dalton James Bond movie, because that thing was wackadoodle. Yeah. Whoa, was it? Uh, yeah, I would love <laughs> to learn about that. I'm like one of the only people that like Bol- Dalton as Bond, so be interesting. Well, this was their attempt to sort of move it away from Dalton more to a Roger Moore type of, type of James Bond movie. And um, He's never seen after ever. the failure of, of License to Kill, it would have been, um, you know, their attempt to sort of be this, do their spy love me or Goldfinger for Dalton, oh. and it never was. But um, it's definitely worth a visit. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. Uh, uh, and uh, you know, we'll we'll also hopefully be able to join you. There's a lot of unmined material in the Star Trek universe, and uh, you know, if you're really unlucky, maybe some of my colleagues from Inglorious Trexperts will drop by to share those with you guys. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. It's uh, really I'm I'm so looking forward uh, to being a listener to future episodes of uh, the podcast and hearing you guys who are so articulate and well versed in all this. And I hope that Graham will be back to read more excerpts from (laughs) the lost (laughs) scripts and treatments. (laughs) Oh, and you as well. Uh, And you can follow Best Movies Never Made by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you hear, please rate us five stars. New episodes will be available every other Monday, so subscribe today. And while you're at it, subscribe to our sister podcast, The 430 Movie, in which a panel of filmmakers curate a fantasy theme 
a fantasy theme week of classic movies every Friday and inglorious Trexperts in which a band of expert Trexperts discuss all things Star Trek, say that five times fast, available every Sunday night. And finally, with very special thanks to Bill Ritter and everyone at Electric Surge Network for making this show possible. So until next time, we won't see you at the movies. This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.